In part one of this two-part podcast on STIs with doctors Catherine Varner and Robin Schaefer, we covered cervicitis, vulvovaginitis, and urethritis and a general approach to these things. We talked about some key historical things that you need to pick up and tips on communication. We talked about the physical exam and who needs a pelvic exam. We talked about what testing to get for which patients and what kind of testing to get. We talked about specific organisms, including mycoplasma genitalum. And we talked about empiric treatment, discharge instructions, and treating the partner. In this part two, we're going to talk about the sometimes elusive pelvic inflammatory disease, PID. We're going to fly through some genital lesions like ulcers and such that we should be able to identify in the ED. And then we're going to talk about STI manifestations that are outside of the genitals, like proctitis, colitis, and then we'll finally drive it home with some key take-home pearls from both parts one and part two. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Let's start with a discussion on PID. So PID includes endometritis, salpingitis, oophoritis, myometritis, tubo-ovarian abscess, peritonitis, and perihepatitis. That's the Fishu curtis syndrome. The reason why I gave you this whole long list is to understand that there is a very wide spectrum of clinical presentations, everything from mild, vague, chronic pelvic pain to Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome, that's the one with the perihepatitis, to acute severe pain with intra-abdominal sepsis to tubo-ovarian abscess, rupture, and even death. And the time course of presentation is typically acute over several days, but more indolent presentations over weeks to months can also happen. Dr. Varner, besides the thankfully uncommon intra-abdominal sepsis, ruptured tubo-ovarian abscess, and death, why is it important to identify and treat PID in the ED? So we're particularly concerned about the long-term effects of PID. So women with pelvic inflammatory disease are at higher risk for infertility and chronic pelvic pain and ectopic pregnancy. So upwards of 10% of women who conceive after pelvic inflammatory disease will have an ectopic pregnancy, which is particularly concerning for emergency physicians. And then why is it missed? I mean, I did talk about how sometimes they just present with mild, vague symptoms. There's this wide spectrum of clinical presentations. But why else is PID often missed in the emergency department, Dr. Schaefer? I think there's a few reasons why we miss it, in addition to what you've mentioned. Like many diagnoses in emergency medicine, one reason is we miss it because we don't consider it initially on our differential diagnosis for a patient presenting with their complaint of abdominal pain or pelvic pain or what have you. It's not a diagnosis that's going to become apparent from our routine blood work, urine testing, or even abdominal imaging that we do for many patients with abdominal pain. So if we don't specifically consider the diagnosis of PID and do a pelvic exam with that in mind, we are very likely to miss it. Additionally, it's important for us to remember that PID is not only caused by gonorrhea and chlamydia. 
If a patient tests negative for gonorrhea and chlamydia and comes in with persistent abdominal and pelvic pain, they may still have a diagnosis of PID. In patients with a diagnosis of PID, approximately 50% of those patients have a positive test for either gonorrhea or chlamydia, which means the other 50% have some other bug that's causing the PID. Additionally, the rise of multidrug-resistant gonorrhea can be a contributor to us missing PID. So if a patient has a diagnosis of gonorrhea and they've been treated for such, but their symptoms persist, they may not actually have been appropriately treated if their infection was multidrug-resistant. So there's a host of factors playing against us contributing to why we might miss this diagnosis. Let's talk about the clinical diagnosis of PID. We know that it's a tough one to make. It can be often elusive and and subtle. Let's start with the diagnostic criteria for PID. And in particular, I'm very curious about the test characteristics for cervical motion tenderness and adnexal tenderness on, on the pelvic exam. So Dr. Varner, what are the diagnostic criteria for PID? And these are important to know because that's going to trigger us to actually start treatment. So you'll be applying these diagnostic criteria to patients in whom you've excluded other causes of lower abdominal pain. So applying this is appropriate in the setting where you are seeing a sexually active young woman in whom you have excluded other causes of pelvic or lower abdominal pain. So the minimum diagnostic criteria of PID require any one of either adnexal tenderness, cervical motion tenderness, or lower abdominal tenderness. So you can make the diagnosis and presumptively treat these patients with any one of these criteria, but you can increase the specificity of the diagnosis by considering other factors for these patients. So if they are febrile, if they have an elevated ESR or CRP, if you know that they have documented gonorrhea or chlamydia or mycoplasma, those are all going to be things that are going to increase the likelihood that this patient does in fact have PID. And then a definitive diagnostic criteria is if the patient has evidence of PID or tubo-ovarian abscess on a transvaginal ultrasound. Okay, so that's nice and clear what the diagnostic criteria are. But as I'm guessing, something like an ESR or adnexal tenderness on its own isn't really all that helpful. These are an accumulation of data points that are going to get you past that pretest probability where you're like, okay, this is PID. Dr. Schaefer, any comments about the accuracy of these various tests, physical exam or blood tests on the diagnosis of PID in the eMERGE? So there's not one specific physical exam maneuver or laboratory test that's going to definitively rule in or rule out the diagnosis of pelvic inflammatory disease. We need to look carefully at the clinical diagnostic criteria and then assess all the data points and come up with a likelihood of diagnosis of pelvic inflammatory disease. Is it fair enough to say that there's no single physical exam maneuver or blood test that can definitively rule in or rule out the diagnosis of PID, that we really need to look at the diagnostic criteria and the minimal diagnostic criteria carefully And if we have enough accumulation of data points to get us to a high enough pretest probability that we can make a presumptive diagnosis of PID and then move forward and go to treatment. Is that that fair to say? I agree. All right, Dr. Varner, let's talk about lab tests and imaging more specifically. 
when it comes to lab tests, there's the white blood cell count, there's ESR, there's CRP. My understanding is that they all have pretty poor sensitivities and specificities. Then there's imaging. Dr. Varner, first, do all patients with suspected PID require a pelvic ultrasound to rule in the diagnosis and to identify tubo-ovarian abscess that would require surgery? What's sort of your threshold for getting imaging in a patient with suspected PID? So I, I don't use pelvic ultrasound in all patients in whom I suspect have PID. I will use a pelvic ultrasound in the patient that has unilateral adnexal pain, which is where I think your bimanual exam is important um, because it helps guide further imaging. And in those patients, you have increased concern for tubo-ovarian abscess because they have tenderness. I also would consider use of a pelvic ultrasound in a patient who's, who looks sick or is febrile or requiring IV narcotics to maintain pain control. Those would be some indications that I would use to guide my use of diagnostic imaging. Sounds very reasonable. And when it comes to antibiotic choices for PID, those always seem to be changing. The CDC guidelines from 2021 recommend either IV ceftriaxone 1 gram Q24H or IM ceftriaxone 500 milligrams for one dose, depending on the severity of the disease, plus doxycycline 100 milligrams PO or IV Q12H plus metronidazole 500 milligrams PO or IV every 12 hours as the first line. Like I said, they always seem to be changing, so it's best to consult your local biogram and guidelines for what antibiotics, but that just gives you an idea depending on how sick they are. Dr. Varner, let's talk disposition. Do all patients with PID need admission? Like, What's your threshold for admission for these patients? Can the patients with mild to moderate PID go home safely? What does the data show us with regards to uh, disposition of PID patients? So in the Canadian setting, most patients are going to be presenting to the emergency department uh, with mild or moderate PID, and the vast majority of these patients are going to be able to go home. And the there are some exceptions, obviously, but the those patients who have mild to moderate PID, we have good randomized trial evidence to show that there's no difference in their outcomes if they are discharged home uh, with oral treatment versus staying in patient receiving IV antibiotics. The exception uh, are pregnant patients. So if you have, while very rare, if you have a pregnant patient with PID, that even if their symptoms are mild to moderate, they do need to be admitted to hospital. Okay, so that's a great overview of who might need to be admitted. For sure, every patient who's pregnant with PID, even if it's very mild, needs to be admitted. And then really, it's a matter of how sick they are. The mild to moderate ones, most of them can go home. If it's severe, they're probably going to be admitted. All right, Dr. Schaefer, let's talk about some specific questions. Let's say a patient has an IUD in place when they get PID. Does that IUD need to be removed in the emergency department? So while the risk for PID associated with IUD use does exist, it's primarily confined to the first three weeks after the insertion of that IUD. But if you see a patient presenting to the emergency department, with a diagnosis of PID who happens to have an IUD, it does not need to be removed unless there's been no clinical improvement with treatment for PID after about 48 to 72 hours. So at that point, you're worried that the IUD might be an ongoing nidus of infection. At that point, you should consider removing it. So we don't necessarily need to remove every IUD in a patient who we've diagnosed with PID immediately. Correct, unless they're not improving after treatment for several days. Okay, got it. Any other pitfalls or pearls when it comes to PID? 
We should keep in mind the not terribly common, but the Fitzhugh Curtis syndrome. So a patient presenting with right upper quadrant pain and tenderness may actually have perihepatitis because of pelvic inflammatory disease with liver capsular inflammation and irritation. So in a patient you're assessing with right upper quadrant pain and tenderness, if you've excluded the diagnosis of hepatitis or pathology of the biliary tract or gallbladder, we should perform a pelvic exam to assess for the possibility of PID in those patients. Great pearl. And my understanding is that the LFTs are often normal or only very slightly elevated in patients with Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome. Is that, is that right? That's my understanding, yes. Yeah, so that makes it a, a pretty tricky diagnosis because, you know, liver enzymes are normal. They've got some right upper quadrant pain. The imaging might look perfectly normal as well. So we do have to have sort of a low threshold for thinking about this diagnosis in patients at risk for PID and think about doing a, a pelvic exam when you have a right upper quadrant pain, NYD, with everything that comes back negative. Just like for many women with other abdo pain, NYD, once you've done your regular exam, your regular blood work, your abdominal imaging, if you still don't have an answer, we should still be considering PID as the possible etiology. First, a word from one of our sponsors. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well, with meals that work for you, not the other way around. There are many advantages with using Green Chef. Besides it being really convenient, healthy, time efficient, and yummy, you're reducing your food waste up to 23% compared to grocery shopping. Bring more flavor to your meals this May with Green Chef's wholesome, elevated recipes featuring seasonal organic produce and unique farm-fresh ingredients like rainbow carrots, bok choy, and olives. You can prepare these quick meals at home before a shift or for your family, or I just put together the ingredients before a shift, throw the yummy meal into my work bag, and then eat a really healthy meal during a break at work and feel good about it. It's way better than any hospital cafeteria food, that's for sure. Green Chef works perfectly with the EM provider's lifestyle. Go to greenchef.com slash emcases60 and use code emcases60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash emcases60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. All right, let's switch gears completely now from PID and talk about genital ulcers or genital lesions. And as opposed to the many causes of vulvovaginitis and cervicitis that are difficult to diagnose clinically with some rare exceptions, we can usually come up with a pretty good high pretest probability for a provisional diagnosis for a genital ulcer because each of them do have some key diagnostic features. So Dr. Varner, can you just give us your sort of general approach to genital ulcers? So the vast majority of lesions that are in the either the vulva or in the anogenital area are going to be related to HSV or herpes simplex virus. So more than 90% of these lesions are, are going to be HSV. However, if the patient has a lesion that is not characteristic of HSV or is not responding to the typical treatments for herpes then my differential becomes much more broad. And that's where I think we can offer an approach to emergency physicians for an, uh, these non-HSV appearing lesions. So first, I would divide them into painful versus painless. So 
painful lesions are going to be chancroid, herpes like we've already spoken about. Painless lesions are going to be your lymphogranuloma venarium, syphilis, or granuloma inguinale. The next way you can categorize these lesions are whether or not they are solitary or multiple. So the solitary lesions are primary syphilis, so 70% of these lesions are going to be single, LGV, chancroid, or granuloma inguinale. If they're in multiples, those are going to be your chancroid or your granuloma can do that as well. And then finally, the lymphadenopathy is a clue. So if the lymphadenopathy is painful or tender, then it's going to be more likely HSV or chancroid or LGV, whereas syphilis often is accompanied by painless lymphadenopathy. All right, great. So really there's three things to consider. If it's obvious HSV, that's one thing. If it's not obvious HSV, then you're considering these three things. One, is it painless or painful? And chancroid is the one besides herpes that's painful. All the other ones are painless. Second, you're determining whether they're solitary or multiple lesions, because something like syphilis, most of them are solitary. Same with LGV. And remember that cancroid and granuloma inguinale can be solitary or multiple. And then thirdly, just to check for adenopathy. And I guess the key there with adenopathy is that syphilis usually is painless, non-tender adenopathy, whereas the other ones are often painful and tender. Usually by the time you've gone through those few factors, you have a pretty good idea of which one it might be. Let's talk more specifically about the painful ulcers. So as you had mentioned, herpes is by far the most common one. So if the lesions are itchy and painful and evolve from the classic clustered vesicles on an erythematous base to ulcers, and especially if the illness is recurrent, then it's probably HSV and you treat with valacyclovir or acyclovir. That one, again, is relatively easy. If the presentation of multiple painful ulcers isn't so clear, you really need to think about chancroid. Dr. Schaefer, could you give us a little bit of idea about what chancroid is and how we identify it and how we treat it? So chancroid is caused by the bacterium Haemophilus ducreae. It's not as common as other anogenital ulcers that we might see in North America. Its prevalence is declining in North America and worldwide. It's still seen sporadically and most often in parts of Africa and the Caribbean. It is characterized by either single or multiple necrotizing painful ulcers, often with regional lymphadenopathy. So the ulcers are often one to two centimeters in diameter with an erythematous base. The borders are clearly demarcated, sometimes a little bit undermined, and they're located in the Areas subjected to friction during sexual activity, so along the penis, the labia, the introitus, perianal area. The lymphadenopathy that occurs is often painful and can become separative with overlying erythema and edema of the skin, but this lymphadenopathy occurs several weeks after the genital ulcer presents. Chancroid is more often a diagnosis of exclusion, once you've ruled out herpes simplex and you've ruled out syphilis. So we can make a presumptive diagnosis of chancroid in a patient with a painful genital area ulcer, especially if they've subsequently developed regional painful lymphadenopathy and have tested negative for herpes simplex and tested negative for syphilis 14 days after the onset of the ulcers. 
definitive diagnosis of chancroid is rather tricky. The culture medium is very difficult to obtain. It's not widely available. And there are not any readily available uh, nucleic acid amplification or PCR tests. So it really is a, a clinical diagnosis and one of exclusion. All right. So think chancroid when you have someone with painful ulcers and lymphadenopathy. That's not HSV or syphilis. And then the treatment is easy. It's a single dose of ceftriaxone. Yeah? Correct. Similar to how we treat empirically for cervicitis or uncomplicated urogenital gonococcal infections. All right. So HSV and chancroid, those are the two painful ones. Uh, Let's flip onto the other side and go to the painless ulcers. And the primary one to think about, of course, is syphilis. Now, remember, we had mentioned in the first episode that syphilis is on the rise and can have devastating consequences when left unrecognized and untreated. So we should have a fairly low threshold for giving penicillin to prevent neurosyphilis and death. So I I just want to talk a little bit more about syphilis. Dr. Varner, what are the most important aspects of syphilis that ED docs need to know about in order to pick up this diagnosis? These patients will often have a painless lesion that they may not even recognize. So the primary lesions are often missed because they're in locations where patients might not see them. And they are single, they are self-resolving. But if you identify a lesion, which can be vaginal, penile, or anal, uh, it can be tested for syphilis. So the most common presentation in my clinical experience in emergency department is actually for secondary syphilis. So patients will most often present with a rash, and that rash are either macules or papules on the palms and soles. And sometimes patients will also have an accompanying rash that is a diffused rash over their torso that's generally non-itchy. And when I see a rash that is involving the palms and soles, my first thought for those patients is testing them for syphilis because there are very few other rashes that cause those palms and soles types rashes. So in the appropriate patient population, I will do syphilis testing for those patients. Okay. So secondary syphilis is the hand, foot, and mouth disease of adults with the proviso that adults can also get hand, foot, and mouth disease. The other clinical situation that secondary syphilis comes up in is if you have a patient with iritis or uveitis, in addition to headache and constitutional symptoms that you can't really figure out. In other words, patients with risk factors for syphilis who have iritis along with headache and constitutional symptoms should be considered to have syphilis until proven otherwise. So that's secondary syphilis, which you might see once every five or 10 years in an emergency practice. Then there's tertiary syphilis, which is a much harder diagnosis. What do we need to know about tertiary syphilis? So neurosyphilis can present at any stage of uh, syphilis. And in addition to that, making it even more challenging to diagnose in patients who have tertiary syphilis can have a variety of different physical manifestations that are in general going to be diagnosed in a hospital admission type setting. So that's a bit about how to pick up the diagnosis of syphilis clinically. Again, primary syphilis, we're looking for a painless ulcer that's indurated with serous exudates. Again, they're usually single. They can be multiple. There's a smooth margin and base, and there's non-tender lymphadenopathy, which is quite common. And then what we're actually more likely to see, because primary syphilis is often missed because the patient doesn't even know they have it, 
because it's painless, we see them come in with the rash on the palms and the soles of the feet, and that's secondary syphilis. Then there's neurosyphilis and tertiary syphilis, which is even more difficult to diagnose, which is usually diagnosed just as an inpatient. I don't think we're really expected to make that diagnosis in the emergency department. Now, we can also identify syphilis simply by knowing who to test. And this will come back to screening for syphilis in anyone with an STI. Dr. Schaefer, can you just go over for us who we should be testing for syphilis and what tests we should do? And I'll preempt this by saying it's actually quite complicated because there's a lot of different tests for syphilis, but your simplified approach to who we should test for syphilis and how we should test for them. So who we should test comes down to patients that we're seeing in the emergency department with anogenital ulcerative lesions. We want to do testing on those lesions to determine whether it's syphilis or some other disease. And we're going to be screening for syphilis in patients who have other STIs, either presumptively or or diagnosed. In terms of how to test, this is where it gets a little bit complicated. So if you are testing a patient that has an ulcer, there are direct detection methods that can be done on that ulcer itself, whether that's a dark field microscopy, a PCR test, direct fluorescent antibody testing, that will pick up a positive diagnosis early on in the presentation of primary syphilis before any serologic response occurs and before any of the serologic testing becomes positive. There is, of course, the serologic testing, and that's classified based on the antigen to which the antibodies are responding. This is where I've found it got confusing. They're sometimes referred to as non-treponemal versus treponemal serologic tests. So the non-treponemal serologic tests detect antibodies to damaged host cells and possibly also to the treponemes themselves. An example of these non-treponemal serologic tests would be the RPR, or rapid plasma reagent, or the VDRL, the Venereal Disease Research Lab Test. These are semi-quantitative assays reflecting the activity of the infection. So in a primary syphilis infection, seroconversion can take a few weeks, so three to six weeks. So patients with primary syphilis can initially have negative serologic tests with these non-treponemal serologies. So you can get a false negative early on in primary syphilis. And titers will decline over time, ultimately becoming negative after successful treatment or later on in much later, later stages of tertiary syphilis and beyond. So there can be false negatives later on in the course of illness as well. In terms of the treponemal serologic tests, these detect antibodies to the treponema pallidum itself, and there are various types. These are reported as either reactive or non-reactive. These also become detectable about two to four weeks after a primary infection, so they can be falsely negative early on in a primary infection. But these do remain positive even after successful treatment. So you can get a false positive for one of these treponemal serologic tests even after a patient has successfully been treated for syphilis if they don't actively have an infection. So for symptomatic patients, if they have an ulcer, we're going to be doing one of those direct detection tests on the ulcer itself. And for serologic testing for screening, 
We typically start with a non-treponemal test, and if it's positive, we'll confirm it with a treponemal test. Got it. Okay. So the take-home points there are, first, that syphilis is on the rise. We need to do testing for syphilis on anyone who we diagnose with an STI. Don't forget that. And if you do see an ulcer, you're going to be doing a direct test on that ulcer. And during that time that they have the ulcer, they are very likely to have a false negative blood test or VDRL. So we need to know about that. And then once they've gotten to a later stage of syphilis, then you want to start with something like a VDRL. And if that's positive, to go on to the treponemal test. That clears up everything about syphilis I've ever wanted to know. I don't think I want to know much more about it, but that's uh, that's good. Because syphilis was one of those things that was always this vague thing that I wasn't exactly sure how to diagnose, when to test, who to test, and how to test. So this is perfect. A word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system that has made my life and the lives of my colleagues so much easier. Metricade can really help minimize the drawbacks of shift work we all know so well by not only ensuring equitable distribution of shifts, but also integrating circadian rhythm-friendly recovery time into their algorithms. They minimize my sleep deprivation, which allows me to be a better EM doc on shift. I can take better care of my patients and still have energy left after my shifts to enjoy other aspects of my life. Check out metricade.com slash emcases for more details on how this awesome scheduling system works. I want to move on to LGV or lymphogranuloma. So now we're talking about painless ulcers and the primary concern, as we've established, is syphilis. But the other big consideration on the painless side is LGV. So why should emergency physicians care about LGV? So we're seeing more and more clusters of LGV occurrences in Canada in particular. And unfortunately, our patients are also being misdiagnosed as having proctitis and and being treated initially with even things like hemorrhoid creams because they're presenting with some discomfort when they're having bowel movements, uh, which then if untreated, it progresses to symptoms like pain with bowel movements and bloody bowel movements. And if untreated, it can ultimately lead to fistulas and strictures. Okay. So one of the reasons why we need to know about LGV is that it can cause proctitis. We need to have it on a differential diagnosis for rectal pain. Anything else about LGV? If patients are at risk of inoculation around the perianal or rectal area with STIs, such as men having sex with men or patients practicing in receptive anal intercourse, they may have a diagnosis of LGV that mimics inflammatory bowel disease. So patient presenting with rectal pain, tenesmus, ulceration, bloody discharge may actually have LGV and be misdiagnosed as inflammatory bowel disease, hemorrhoids, or other more common conditions. That's a great clinical pearl. I think the bottom line is just to remember that LGV commonly presents as proctocolitis and can mimic IBD. Okay, so you might suspect LGV in a patient who looks like they have IBD. How would you test for it and treat for it? So this is a bit tricky because you have to suspect that it's LGV. And so at our site, you have to identify when you're doing your testing on culture that you suspect that this patient has LGV and then they have to test for it internally in the lab Um, because it is a subtype of chlamydia. 
And so your test results will show chlamydia as opposed to LGV, unless you specify that you're concerned about this particular subtype, and then they'll do a subtype analysis. Hmm, That's a very important detail there. Okay, so if you suspect LGV in a patient who kind of looks like IBD, but they have risk factors for STIs, then you send a swab specifically for LGV, because otherwise it might come back as chlamydia, which is not. It's actually a separate thing. It's a subtype of of chlamydia. And if you get a a swab back that shows chlamydia and the patient's presenting with LGV symptoms, so painful lymphadenopathy, symptoms that mimic proctitis, then it would be appropriate to treat that patient as though they have LGV as opposed to doing additional testing. Got it. Okay. And the treatment for chlamydia is usually one week of doxy. My understanding is that for LGV, it's much longer. So that's one of the reasons why it's important to identify this as LGV and not chlamydia because the treatment's going to be different. So the first line for LGV is doxycycline, 100 milligrams BID for 21 days as opposed to seven days for chlamydia in a patient with, say, urethritis or cervicitis. So, so far, we've covered the painful multiple lesions of HSV and chancroid, the painless ulcers of syphilis and LGV and how to distinguish the two. The last STI ulcer on the list is granuloma inguinale. Dr. Varner, besides the painless, extensive, progressive ulcerative lesions, what else can help us identify granuloma inguinale in the ED? So I can't say that I've ever seen one of these lesions myself. Uh, I think they're still fairly rare. These are caused by Klebsiella granulomatis. And as you mentioned, so they're single or multiple. They can be progressive. They're often painless, but they look like they would be painful. So highly vascular, friable, necrotic skin, and it almost looks like there are erosions around the, the site of the lesions that are progressively getting larger and they can relapse even after effective treatment. So that's something to be aware of as well. I like that key point there. They're totally painless, but they look like they're very painful because they're beefy red and sometimes bleeding easily on contact, and they kind of look necrotic, right? So that's a great clinical pearl there. And my understanding is that the treatment for that is actually the same as for LGV, which is 21 days of doxy. That's right. So putting all this stuff together about genital ulcers, Dr. Schaefer, what lab tests do you order? What swabs do you do? What blood tests do you do? Let's say you have an undifferentiated genital or anal ulcer. What are you going to send for? So to investigate the ulcer itself, we're going to be sending off swabs for herpes, simplex, and direct testing for syphilis. We're going to also follow up with serological testing for syphilis. If there's a question at all clinically about lymphogranuloma venerium, we're going to send off a swab for chlamydia, preferably the NAT, the nucleic acid amplification test, and specify to the lab that we're querying LGV. We're also going to send off serology for HIV. We're going to do NAT testing for gonorrhea and chlamydia for screening as well. And if we're considering the possible diagnosis of granuloma inguinale, That will really be in the situation where our other tests come back negative, so negative for herpes, for syphilis, for chlamydia in the context of possible LGV, and really those patients need to have outpatient follow-up and ultimately a biopsy to make that final diagnosis. 
I just want to talk a little bit about empiric treatment for patients with ulcers. So if you see someone who looks like they have genital herpes, you'll treat them empirically, you'll do a swab. That one's pretty easy. What about for syphilis and LGV? So if you have a patient with risk factors for sexually transmitted infections and you're considering the plausible diagnosis of syphilis or LGV as the cause of a, an anogenital area ulcer, I think it's reasonable to consider empiric treatment for these patients, especially if follow-up is uncertain in that case. Okay. And just to remind our listeners, the treatment for syphilis and for LGV? Long-acting benzathine penicillin G, 2.4 million units IM, and it's only one dose, unless they're pregnant, and then they need a second dose seven days after the first dose. And for LGV, it's similar to chlamydia, doxycycline 100 milligrams POBID, but it's a duration of 21 days as opposed to just the seven days. All right. Excellent. So that's about as much as I want to know about genital ulcers. <laughs> um, Dr. Schaefer, are there any particular considerations for people who are transgender when they come in with a potential STI? Transgender patients, of course, have the same risk for STIs depending on their sexual practices and the site of possible inoculation. But there are some unique considerations. For example, if a patient has had a vaginoplasty using an intestinal graft and comes in with irritative symptoms in this neovagina, it may be related to a sexually transmitted infection, but it also might be related to primary disease of the native tissue, meaning a primary bowel disease, such as adenocarcinoma, inflammatory bowel disease, colitis, or polyps. So we have to take into consideration infectious etiologies, but also diseases of the native tissue itself. Very interesting. All right. Let's kind of wrap it up with some key pearls and pitfalls. First, have a low threshold to do a pelvic exam to pick up anogenital ulcers, cervicitis, and PID, and consider PID in all women with unexplained pelvic pain. PID is not only caused by GC and chlamydia, so if these tests are negative, you're not done, you haven't ruled out PID, and you really should think about mycoplasma genitalia. The diagnosis of STI is a biomarker for HIV and the rising rates of syphilis, so patients need screening for both HIV and syphilis if you diagnose them with an STI. LGV commonly presents with proctocolitis that can mimic IBD. As Dr. Schaefer just said, transgender women can get neovaginal STIs and related bowel disease. Remember that mycoplasma genitalum should be at the top of your list for men with persistent non-gonococcal urethritis. Any other take-home points you want our listeners to remember from this podcast? I hope it's been a good overview for all of us about the approach to sexually transmitted infections and a good reminder for us of items to keep in mind on our differential that we don't often think of that we should consider in patients presenting with anogenital complaints or abdominal or pelvic pain. And while we can diagnose and treat in the emergency department, follow-up is really important in these patients uh, because they need appropriate counseling for preventive measures in the future to avoid acquisition of additional STIs. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Schaefer and Dr. Varner, for your insights into STIs. 
This was a tough topic to cover on a podcast, and I really appreciate all your efforts to try and educate our wider EM community on probably the many, 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 many STIs that we've all missed in the emergency department. Thanks so much for having me, Anton. Thank you very much. Thank you.